So hello. Earlier today when the lights were out, did everyone notice we were out of power? Did anyone not notice? I really hope somebody didn't notice. Yeah, great. Some people didn't notice. We didn't have power. Awesome. Awesome. Great. That's a real, you know, med- meditation retreat when people don't know. So yeah, so this afternoon we didn't have power and um, and uh, we had images of how this talk was going to work without with my voice being soft and there being 90-some of you in the hall. And uh, so everything changes. Everything changes. The power is back and it seems like nothing happened, but everything changes all the time. So if you've uh, attended many retreats before, you might have noticed that the instructions on this retreat have been a little different. Uh, they've been focusing choiceless awareness more. And if this is your first retreat and you have no idea what I'm talking about, great. You have no comparing mind. Otherwise, you might have a comparing mind. Well, last retreat, it was like this, and this is like this. How do I practice? So there are lots of different ways to practice. There are lots of different instructions, ways to to practice, um, and um, some work for some minds better. And um, and this retreat, our encouragement is to try try this style. Try it on for size. You're here. Try it on. See how it works. You might love it. You might fall in love with it. And your mind type might be just the right type for this kind of exploration. So what I wanted to do for the first part of my talk tonight, um, especially arising from the interviews and the conversations uh, that that uh, I've had and we've had um, in the practice meetings with various yogis, is to try to codify the principles and the framework of practice. Just clarify, clarify. For some of you, this might be a repeat, but it's nice to hear it in different ways. And actually, for all of you, it is a repeat because we've all been talking about the same thing over the past few days. It's just nice to hear it in a different way from a different person. And sometimes I know I need to hear things multiple times and maybe the third or fourth time I get it when somebody else says it. So offering it in that um, in that spirit. So there are some main principles, I like to say. My mind works in principles and numbers and lists, so bear with me. I, I share something with the Buddha who also had lists. Loved lists. He loved lists. So with the practice of choiceless awareness, and I also have to say that um, many of us have practiced some um, with Utejaniya, who... Uh, is a um, highly respected monk who teaches primarily this style of practice, choiceless awareness. So many of the things that I'll be saying tonight is inspired uh, by his teachings. I want to give credit where credit is due. So the first principle is to be aware. Has anyone missed that over the past few days? 
<laughs> we've said it a gazillion times in different shapes and forms. The first principle is to be aware. And opening the sphere of awareness to whatever comes in. The reason why it's called choiceless awareness is that you're not ne necessarily making a choice to attend to this or attend to that. You're relaxing, opening the sphere of awareness, and whatever comes in becomes your object of awareness. Ah, sound, oh, sensation, oh, thought. So that's the basic thrust of the practice, is principle number one. However, having said that, you also notice that over the past few days, um, we have encouraged you to pay more attention to the body and your breath. And that's skillful means to start tethering the attention. As you come off the street, the busy mind, and, and you open, and if you try to just open your awareness to thoughts, it's hard to get settled. It's not skillful to let the, the thoughts be the very first thing that you attend to. It's hard to get settled. So in terms of skillful means, what we have been doing, as you've noticed, is to try to settle you in by bringing attention to body sensations, sounds, sensations of the breath, uh, touch points, etc., etc., to tether the attention. And also, as you noticed, as, as Eugene set the framework in the very first day of instructions, opening up to all of reality, just that is the, that is the framework. So we have been using words like observe, watch, be aware, pay attention. We haven't been using words like focus, concentrate, penetrate. Have you noticed? So I'm going to invite you when you're doing being your own Dharma coach to, to try the same language. Pay attention, be aware, observe, watch. There's a sense of ease in that. Do you hear in the languaging? There's a sense of ease and openness to notice the experience as it arises. So there are questions that help support this first principle of being aware. And one way to practice in this style is to drop questions in your mind um, as, as Eugene was talking about. Um, last night, a lot of questions. Um, you can ask, "Where is the mind?" Actually, let's let's try, let's try that. I'm going to drop in the questions while you're sitting here. Close your eyes for a moment. Where is the mind? What is it doing? Is awareness present? How does it feel to be aware? How does it feel not to be aware? 
If awareness is present, what's the quality of awareness? Is it strong or weak? Is awareness continuous? What do you understand because of awareness in this moment? You can open your eyes and continue to be aware as you open your eyes. So questions like this, drop them in while you're sitting. Drop them in while you're walking. Drop them in. Where is the mind? What's the mind doing? Keep dropping the question in. Where's the mind right now? What's it doing right now? What is it aware of? So... The second principle, okay, so the first principle was be aware. The second principle is all the time. Oh, I heard some gasps. (laughs) It does sound overwhelming, but it's not because there is a secret that I will share with you in a moment how this all works. So be aware all the time from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed. Continuity is the key in this practice. You keep reminding yourself when you wake up, the moment you wake up as you're brushing your teeth, where's the mind, what is it doing? When you're walking down, when, when, you, when you come to, to sit, when you go walk down for breakfast, when you're sitting in line, when you're standing in line, when you're sitting down, every moment, aware, aware, aware. Okay, so so sounds like a Herculean effort, but I'm going to give you the, the third principle, which is the secret of how number two can possibly work. Ready for it? Are you ready? Yeah? Okay. So the third principle is relax. It takes very little effort to actually be aware if you've noticed. It does not take Herculean effort. Are you aware that you're sitting right now? That's the level of effort you're supposed to be putting in. If you're putting any more effort than just this, you're over-efforting in this practice. That's why you can be practicing all day just very, very light touch, very light effort, but continuously all the time. And, and it becomes, the wind comes in. And um, if, if you use excessive energy, if you really try to focus and penetrate and concentrate in this practice, in this style, the mind will get tired. But if you observe and allow with a relaxed mind and a relaxed body, but noticing all the time, very light touch. Are you aware that you're listening right now? That's the level of energy you should be putting in. That's, that's all that's needed. Just awareness, light awareness all the time.
In this way, there is no dichotomy on and off the cushion. It's not like you'll be sitting on the cushion and really practicing. And the moment you get up, you go for a walk and you allow yourself to chill out and have a cup of tea. No, you're sitting with the same level of ease and relaxation and and attention to what's going on in the mind and body as you continue to get up and get your cup of tea and walk around and go for a walk in the hills and do your walking meditation back and forth, come back in the hall, sit down with the same level of effort and energy, which is very light but continuous. And the momentum builds. The momentum builds. At first, your mind will wander, etc., but the momentum will build. And then you'll notice you'll become aware all the time. It's a light touch, but it's amazing. You become intimate with reality as it presents itself to you all the time, everywhere. I was practicing with Utejaniya at IMS um, in uh, spring of this year, and um, after the mind had built up some momentum, it felt like I was, uh, or the mind, that there was this perception of being in a movie theater of my experience. And I had the front row seat in this experience. It was all coming and going, and I was observing it, but I wasn't involved and attached. I wasn't in the drama of my life experience. It was just everything was there and coming and going. This is how the momentum of this practice can build. So we have a fourth principle that I'd like to share with you. And that one is a very crucial and important one. And that is right attitude. What is right attitude? It's acknowledging and allowing whether the experience is pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant in a relaxed way. So whatever it is, acknowledging and allowing it to be. It's also grandmotherly mind. It's that mind that tells me, that says, tell me everything as Pam beautifully told us a couple of nights ago. It's that mind that wants to know everything. It accepts everything. It's open to everything. Makes no difference whether it's been tough or difficult or lovely. Just tell me everything. And it holds everything with kindness and acceptance. That's right attitude. Right attitude also is being alert and interested. So as you are being relaxed, the mind is still alert and interested, curious in the experience, curiosity. It's very important, the right attitude. It brings an investigation, as Eugene was talking about, investigation, curiosity. As if you're a child and experiencing something for the very first time, that level of curiosity and awe, or if you're a Martian and you were just dropped into this body and you're like, whoa, colors, shapes, feeling, wow, how how do I describe this? This is interesting. 
that level of curiosity and interest in your moment-to-moment experience. Right attitude is not trying to make things turn out the way you want. That's really important. We're not trying to have a particular experience. We're not making things happen or shape in a particular way. We're observing, seeing. That might sound a little counterintuitive to some of you, but it's only through this relaxed way of observation and seeing and seeing clearly over and over and over again that insight arises, that we can see clearly. We cannot make it happen. It's not going to happen by a force of will. And if we try, we're going to make ourselves absolutely miserable, which is going to increase suffering. Beware of your attitude. We're often blind to our attitude. In this practice, it's really important not just to be aware of the object, whatever the object is, sensation, thought, sound, but also your attitude towards it. How are you holding it? What is your relationship? What is your relationship to what's coming up? A lot of times, our attitudes are colored as if we're wearing rose or dark-colored glasses that we're not even noticing. They're colored by what's called the three defilements or three poisons or roots of suffering. Craving, aversion, and delusion. So craving or greed is whenever you want something. There is a desire in the mind, wanted, wanted, I want this. Oh, I want a, a, a great meditative experience. Oh, I want, I want enlightenment to really happen on this retreat. I want, I want, I want. Oh, I want to have more of that delicious thing on the dinner line, dinner table. Wanting, there's that wanting, noticing that. Aversion is, is the similar movement in the mind, but instead pushing away. Don't want that. Don't want that experience. Not pleasant. Don't want it. Don't want it. Make it stop. Make it go away. And then there is delusion, which is confusion. Also, ignorance. And ignorance is what gives rise to craving and aversion. Because if we knew any better, we wouldn't have craving and aversion. So it's confusion, delusion that gives rise to the other things. It's not knowing any better. And also not knowing what's really happening in our mind. So not seeing and accepting the defilements only strengthens them. If you don't see what particular attitude you have, it will just go on unchecked over and over and over again. And if there is not an attitude of acceptance in the mind, but aversion towards, say, the aversion, for example, you notice that that you're really disliking the knee pain, and then you judge yourself that, well, if I were a good yogi, I would be working with this knee pain, and I wouldn't be hating it right now. So you're adding aversion on top of aversion. Instead of taking, looking at, for example, the aversion, which is the second arrow, 
And, okay, I'm disliking this pain. I don't like this pain. I'm hating this pain right now. Ah, not liking is like this. Being aversive to pain is like this. Ah, interesting. Curiosity. Okay, not liking. Having acceptance towards that. So you start on whichever level is on the very top and you apply acceptance and observe, observing to that level and it starts to unwind. Does that make sense? Yeah. So similarly, there are a bunch of questions to help check your attitude that you, sh- that you can use to drop in into your experience while you're practicing any time on the cushion, walking around. So actually, let's try this on for size also. And close your eyes. And just tune into your experience. Where is the mind right now? What is it doing? Now, what is your attitude right now? It's the attitude in the mind. Do you want anything? Is the mind relaxed? How much energy are you using? What does the mind think about the experience right now? Notice if the mind is accepting things as they are, or if there is a like or a dislike, a reaction or a judgment. Just simply being aware of your attitude with a very light touch. You can open your eyes. So again, these are questions that you can drop in any time. And as I have practiced, I found them very useful. What's my attitude right now? What's my attitude? How am I relating to this experience? How am I relating? Is there ease? Is there acceptance? Am I rejecting? Just keep checking. Keep checking. Again, a lot of times all these attitudes are happening without us seeing them clearly. So perhaps not a principle, but a corollary of the above. I've already given you four principles. Okay, let's review them. Be aware. Actually, I'm almost wanting you to say it. I know. Okay, be aware. What's the second one? All the time. Relax. Right attitude. Awesome. Great. You're paying attention. Cool. Great. So the corollary is 
what object you pay attention to is not as important as the observing mind that is paying attention. So the object is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what it is. The sound, the thought, an aversion, an anger, a, a, an impatience, whatever the object of the mind is, it doesn't matter. Um, what is important is the mind that is paying attention to that object and the quality with which the attention is being given. Joseph Goldstein has a beautiful Josephism. He says, it doesn't matter what you don't cling to. It's a double negative. It doesn't matter what you don't cling to. So it doesn't matter what the object is yet that you end up not clinging to as long as it's an you know, object of your observation. So sensations, hearing, wandering mind, the six sense doors, and we've talked about the six sense doors and I just wanted to name them, especially for the new people. Of course, seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, touching, perioception, we all know about that. Those are the five sense doors. What's the sixth one? Some of you might be asking some of the new people. The sixth door, sense door in Buddhism is the mind door is in the mind door, all of these five that we just talked about, they can be replayed the same way that you can remember a, a piece of music and replay it in your mind or a smell of flower. So the sixth door, the mind door, is what memory can, can really play everything else in it. So it doesn't matter which of these sense doors you pay, atten pay attention to. They can all serve as your teacher. There is teachers, there are teachers everywhere and teachings everywhere. In fact, there's a beautiful title. The, the title of, of um, Utejaniya's beautiful book, is one of his books is Dhamma Everywhere. Dhamma Everywhere, just everywhere. Wherever you pay attention to, there is Dhamma. I wanted to share a poem from Rumi with you, which talks about this actually quite beautifully. And um, as, as many of you already know, Rumi is a Sufi poet, Persian, and I'm Persian. I was born in Iran. So I, when I was growing up, I used to love reading Rumi in Farsi. And I would have loved to read for you this in Farsi also, but I don't have the Farsi. I just have the translation by Coleman Barks. So sorry. So, so here we go. Last night, my teacher taught me the lesson of poverty, having nothing and wanting nothing. I am a naked man standing inside a mine of rubies, clothed in red silk. I absorb the shining, and now I see the ocean, billions of simultaneous motions moving in me. The circle of lovely, quiet people becomes the ring on my finger. Especially like this line, given that we're on a silent retreat. A circle of lovely, quiet people becomes the ring on my finger. Then wind and the thunder of rain on the way. I have such a teacher. I forgot to tell you that's the name of the whole poem. I have such a teacher. So his teacher is 
poverty, having nothing and wanting nothing. Lovely, quiet people, thunder of rain on the way and the wind. So you can learn from anything. As you open your awareness, anything can be your teacher in your sphere of experience. Anything. One thing that can particularly serve as a great teacher is pain. And I wanted to talk about that um, as it's come up in the hall and in interviews. And with the show of hands that we had the other day, a lot of you have been experiencing it and some of you chronic pain. I found that in my practice, pain has been a great teacher, really a great teacher. And the idea is not to fight with it, but it really provides a learning opportunity to observe mental reactions par excellence. So I've had a chronic illness and I've had a lot of chronic pain over the years. And so I've had to work with it. I've had to learn how to work with it. And a bunch of years ago, I was meditating with the pain. I was meditating. I was meditating. I was observing the sensations, which is the instructions. Observe the, you know, get rid of the label of the pain and observe the sensations, just as sensations, as bare, raw sensations. Is it stabbing? Is it hot? Is it heat? Is it motion? separate out the ple- the unpleasantness. So I was doing all of this. I was doing and I was uh, noticing all the sensations and the unpleasantness and my aversion to it. And I kept practicing and it suddenly dawned on me that I had an agenda. The reason why I was contemplating pain was to get rid of it. I had this really, really, really subtle agenda that I hadn't seen for a long time. So it wasn't so clear that I wasn't doing it grudgingly. I was doing it still seemingly very peacefully, you know, sensation, aversion. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I I was still doing it to get rid of it. It was a very hidden agenda. that took me a long time to see that until I saw that and let go of, on, of that hidden agenda. And the question that I asked was, would it be okay if this pain just never goes away and it's just like this? When I could say, yes, it'll be fine. That's when my relationship completely changed to the pain. And it became interesting. It felt like fireworks in the body, just all these strange sensations. It really felt like I was a Martian who was dropped in this body and there was fireworks everywhere, these interesting sensations. It wasn't called pain anymore. It was just these really boom, boom, really exciting, interesting. And it was fine. It was fine. So the sensations didn't go away, but my relationship did. And I found that Emotional pain is also similar. We often have a lot of aversion to it. We want it to go away. We want it to stop. There is this, we attend to it. Maybe we're mindful of it. We open to it in order for it to 
go away and leave us alone so that we can have peace. But actually, as we have aversion and we want things to go away, we are really creating a hook and we're making things stay. Another Joseph Goldsteinism that I like is um, he talks about how when we have emotions, for example, negative emotions, difficult states, um, they're like a river, they're energy in motion, they're passing through. If we want them to go away, if we're scared of them, if we hate them, if you're, you know, any, if there's any aversion, any resistance, it's like putting up a dam, putting up a dam and the water backs up and the dam has to be so strong and it's just so much pressure and resistance. But if you let it, let the, the, the resistance down, it just flows through, it just goes away. See that in your own experience. See that in your own experience. If you allow difficult states to move through instead of putting up a dam. So in the time that is left, I like to talk about not how of practice, which we've talked about with the four principles that hopefully now you remember, but why do we practice? Why are we here? Echoing what Eugene was talking about last night and, and expanding in my way. We're practicing to know the reality of things, to be intimate with reality, to see things as they really, really are. We're also practicing to unpack the compactness of our experience. So our experience often happens so quickly, so quickly that we're caught in the middle of it and we don't see what happened. So the reason why we are slowing down, relaxing, observing, observing, observing. Some of you might be asking, why? Like, why all this trouble? Well, one, one aspect of it is seeing the compactness of experience, unpacking it. So, so suppose, talking about the example of pain, a sensation arises in your knee, It's unpleasant, so you label it as unpleasant. Then you have aversion to it. Then you want it to go away. Then you really, really hate it. Then you hate your body. Then you hate your life. Then you're grumpy. Then it's like, why am I here? What am I doing, right? So when something like this happens, it usually happens in an instant. We're not even aware. It's all of a sudden, I have pain, I hate my life. Right? Anyone experienced that ever? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's familiar. But that's a little example. Look for your own examples. But when you're actually observing with clarity and checking your attitude, really observing, you can see, ah, you go back, you see, oh, it was just a sensation. Then I labeled it as 
unpleasant. Then then aversion rushed in. Then I wanted to push it away and I hated it. And then I thought of how much I hate my body and then how much I hate. You can just see like, oh, this is what's happening in my field of experience. Oh, it's just a sensation. Oh, it's the sensation. Well, it's just a sensation. So you can unpack your experience in in so many ways. Or somebody, you know, you're walking towards the lunch line. A lot of things happen at lunch. Have you noticed there's so much papancha coming on during during meals? And somebody in front of you is, you know, taking their sweet time and and you're angry all of a sudden. I'm angry. You don't even notice. Well, what's going on? Oh, there's some impatience. Oh, I want food. Oh, that's my favorite food. Oh, I want it. I want, they're an obstacle. They're in my way. I want them to go away. Oh, I'm angry. It's like boom, 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 boom. I'm angry. I hate them. Why are they doing on this meditation retreat? So just, just, just notice, just observe, like what's going, maybe, maybe you were already anxious when you walked in. Maybe there was some anxiousness already. Maybe there was some aversion already. Just see, unpack your experience. Another aspect that can open up as we pay attention moment to moment to every aspect of of experience is what are called the three characteristics of existence. They start to come in clear view. You start to see them more clearly. What are the three characteristics of existence? There is anicca, there's impermanence. You get to see impermanence and know it intimately. I mean, we know impermanence on long scales. You know, people die, buildings fall off, empires extinguish. Um, But do we see it in the moment-to-moment momentary experience of our life? that every moment in our life, every moment, every moment there is a birth and every moment there is a death. Every moment, every moment, everything comes and goes. Everything comes and goes. There is nothing to hang on to. Everything comes and goes. It also allows us to open up to anatta, principle of not-self, that we don't have control over this body, we don't have control over this mind. The mind is an aspect of nature. It's not me, it's not I, it's not self. It thinks thoughts. Have you tried to control your thoughts today? And how successful were you? Have you tried to control your body? If you tried not to digest, could you? If you tried to, if you had a wound, could you not um, not heal or heal it faster? The body just does its thing. It's nature. It's just nature. You get to see. You get to see with momentary experience that that this body, this mind, is just nature. 
And that's also a helpful attitude to have, a right attitude to have. It's just nature. It arises and passes away. This practice also helps us become more intimate with dukkha. And I'd like to spend the remaining time talking about that, actually, because, again, that has come up a lot in different shapes and forms and flavors in our group discussions. So the word dukkha is one that we hear a lot in the Buddhist circles. It's often translated to suffering, but that's only one translation as a form of gross suffering, gross difficulty. There's also unease, friction, stress, disharmony, uncomfortable, unsatisfactoriness. So there are lots of different shapes and sizes of dukkha that we experience. Anyone experienced any dukkha in this retreat yet? <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's a part of our human experience, big and small. There are big dukkhas, losses, um, sadnesses, depression. They're just difficult, large dukkhas. And they're also small ones, not getting your way, not, not getting what you want in a minor way, the weather being colder than you wanted it to be, or just minor ways that are unease, unsatisfactory, not good enough, the food being too salty or, or not salty enough, just minor unsatisfactoriness, disharmony, minor friction. David Loy says, although dukkha is usually translated as suffering, that is too narrow. The point of dukkha is that even those who are wealthy and healthy experience a basic dissatisfaction, a dis-ease which continually festers, that we find life dissatisfactory, one damn problem after another, is not accidental because it is the nature of the unawakened sense of self to be bothered about something. I think he puts it very well. It's one damn problem after another. Joseph says, if it's not one thing, it's another. Francis' story also has various ways of um, describing dukkha. So listen for this list to see if you recognize some aspects of your experience in this. Disturbance, irritation, worry, despair, fear, anguish, anxiety, vulnerability, injury, sickness, pain, longing, aimlessness, hope slash hopelessness, striving slash suppression, sickness, aging, decay of body faculties, decision slash indecisiveness, aversion slash attraction, parenthood slash childlessness, love slash lovelessness, excitement slash boredom, the list goes on and on. Recognize any of your experience in the dukkha? Yeah, it's a part of our human experience. The only way to end suffering is through it. Understanding it intimately, not avoiding it. You find freedom through understanding it. Ajahn Chah says, 
our defilements are like fertilizer for our practice. Um, actually, not that quote. Here, there's another quote. Sorry, wrong quote. There are two kinds of suffering. The suffering which leads to more suffering and the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. The first is the pain of grasping after fleeting pleasures and aversion for the unpleasant, the continued struggle of most people day after day. The second is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience, fear or withdrawal. The suffering of our experience lead to inner fearlessness and peace. The experience of dukkha is something that binds all of us together. All of us in this room, we have all experienced dukkha, large and small in our life, large losses, pains, a lot of difficulty. I may not know each and every one of your difficulties in your life, but I can be sure that you've had them. I can be sure that you've had them. And you may not know mine, but you can be sure that I've suffered in major ways and in minor ways. We all do. It's what binds us together. It's part of the human experience. No matter what our status is, rich, poor, what color of our skin, whether it's ethnicity, country of origin, our sexual orientation, whatever it is, we suffer. We suffer as human beings. Of course, dukkha of race, gender, body type, shape, class, education, Social, con social conditions are not to be condoned just as social conditions or it's just dukkha, it's just dukkha. It's not that at all and it should never be thought of that. And to know that it's a way that all of us human beings are bound together. We all do suffer in different shapes and sizes, sh shapes and ways. The way to open up to the suffering that ends suffering, as Ajahn Chah talks about it, is to be alert and recognize it. That's step number one. We're often in the midst of suffering without even recognizing that it's suffering. We sometimes blame ourselves, blame somebody else, just angry, upset. We don't recognize that all of these states of mind are also dukkha and suffering. Opening and feeling the dukkha, it takes courage, takes stability of mind, takes fearlessness, and it does lead to peace. It's the realization that dukkha is like this, pain is like this, suffering is like this, being sad is like this. It takes just one moment of spaciousness and non-identifying with the dukkha to help our relationship with it and transform our relationship.
that way we can become not an experiencer of the dukkha, that this is my dukkha, it's mine, and I want it to end. That's not the right attitude to contemplate dukkha. The Buddha said, there is dukkha, there is suffering. Suffering is like this. There is suffering. It's not personal. It will allow, opening to it and, and allowing a moment of spaciousness and non-identifying can allow us to be aware of it as a witness, not an, as an experiencer who's in the midst of it, not a person who is angry and suffering, but anger arising. There is anger. I like to share my own experience of, um, of chronic illness which has been a lot of dukkha, a lot of pain, and a lot of suffering. And for me, it has been quite a journey of, of hating it, wanting to go away, when, when will it ever go away, when it will ever, ever stop, to opening to it, just feeling it. It's like this, not being able to do what I want to do, and not having the energy, being bedridden. It's like this. Oh, it's like this. Okay, it's like this. Being sad. Oh, it's like this. It's the only way to make peace with it. I invite us to all sit for a moment. There are two kinds of suffering, said Ajahn Chah. The suffering which leads to more suffering and the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. be free from suffering and know a true taste of liberation. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.